Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. In terms of podcasting, for me, this is a special moment. For as well as chatting with an old fishing friend about one of the most fascinating subjects in freshwater angling, what I'm also doing here is recording a very important piece of angling and scientific history directly from the horse's mouth with Ferox 85 Group co-founder and Ferox Trout Book author Ron Greer. The clue here, obviously, is in the group's name. The word ferox is taken from the Latin term for fierce, which in this particular context is being applied to large, wild fish-eating trout. To be a little more precise, for the moment at least, large fish-eating brown trout. But are they actually brown trout, or perhaps as some suggest, a distinct species in their own right? Well, the jury and its expert witnesses, it seems, for the moment at least, are still out on that one. But I'm going to start by asking the question anyway. So in your considered opinion, Ron, what exactly is a ferox trout? I would define that as all ferox are brown trout, but not all brown trout are ferox. And we still haven't ironed out the genetic versus, you know, the opportunistic development. In some cases there is a genetic background. We know this from Andy Ferguson's work, but uh, the certain strains of ferox from Loch Lagan, Loch Hall, Loch Melvin are all genetically pretty close and they're distinct from the rest of the trout in those lochs. But we don't get that particular genetic type in every loch where we know we get big fish. So it's not a black and white issue. I can't give you a black and white one on that because the case is still open. My personal opinion is there is a, a genetic predetermination in many cases but not in all. What would you say then to Professor Andy Ferguson's claims that he can genetically distinguish between some of the so-called ferox species and, for want of a better way of putting it, a typical brown trout? Well, he can in those lochs that I've mentioned. You know, certainly Loch Hall, Loch Melvin, Loch Lagan, perhaps other lochs you know, in western Scotland and Nor- Northern Ireland, that might be the case. But we've got other locks where we don't get that particular type, where we know that there are ferox in the sense that they are big fish-eating trout. So it's not a universal application that we're talking about here. From time to time, reports appear in the press of huge trout from stock man-made reservoirs, which the press describe as being ferox trout. Like wild ferox, presumably these monsters have also turned to fish feeding at an early age. But because the waters they've come from have no long-term history, these fish cannot be ferox in the true post-glacial sense of the definition. So where, in your opinion, do such reports fit into the great scheme of things? Well, to tell you the truth, uh, I think in every batch of fish you've got to put, if they reach a certain size and they'll switch over to eating uh, fish will grow big, but they could do the same in some places, they just eat huge invertebrates, big shrimps, crayfish, they can get that big too if they've got enough energy supply. Nearly all trout have a capacity to grow big if you let them. So it may be opportunistic in that case, and I don't know anything about the genetic background. Obviously, if people are stocking trout, they may have actually stocked trout which had you know, this ge- genetic haplotype that Andy Perkinson has discovered in them. Because we, we haven't done uh, a nationwide survey of all the fish, only in some logs. So the information is still out there to be, to, to be gathered in. So accepting for the moment the line that ferox trout may not be a separate species but do differ from the smaller brethren at a below speciation level, what is it then in their makeup and lifestyle that sets them apart from the near relatives? When we talk about the classic ferox, we're talking big lochs like Rana, Tay, or Melvin, Windermere. 
glacial locks uh, and in that situation that to me is the classic ferrex habitat and the thing that defines ferrex apart from the large size is the way they seem to delay maturity and put growth into getting big first before they mature uh, so the longevity and the maturation are probably different from the other, the other trout and you have that in other species too it's a strategy yeah they produce lots of little fish that spawn quickly or you wait till you get bigger and lay lots of big eggs that give your young a competitive advantage the disadvantage in that is if you're killed or nobbled before you spawn so uh, catching fish that are too small and killing them if they're ferox might be incredibly damaging whereas taking a, a large fish that spawns several times although not ideal would be less harmful one particular trait assigned to ferox trout that has been scientifically demonstrated is a delayed maturation and move away from annual spawning well, it, it seems to be, they're certainly not annual spawners. They may take several years before they spawn after the first time. They may take uh, eight or nine years to start before they actually spawn. So it's, it's quite varied, but one thing they're not, it, it appears more and more, that once they spawn, they will then switch back on to feeding again and not spawning for at least two years. That's the evidence from Norway, but they're certainly not annual spawners. What then is the comparison between this strategy and the reproductive pattern for non-ferox brown trout? Well, the, in most locks, as Neil Campbell's pointed out, the vast majority of trout never see the 10th birthday. Never, in fact, might not even see the 5th birthday. Whereas with ferox, we've got them quite frequently 10, 12, 15, 20 years old. So there's a, a different approach to your survival strategy. If you don't live long but you mature early and spawn, you're laying smaller eggs in less numbers. And if there's a, a lot of fish doing that, then that works. The other strategy is the one the ferrex adopts and sometimes uh, other species of fish of growing as big as they can before they spawn so they lay lots of big eggs and lots of them. So uh, that's the two strategies and the sort of reproductive strategies of the ferrox and the, uh, and the ordinary trout as it were quite different. Given that ferrox trout need a sustained source of prey fish of a suitable individual size, is there any direct link between large fish feeding trout and the distribution of stunted arctic char in the deeper glacial lakes of the British Isles. The ferox and char inhabit the same kind of lochs and most often in Scotland the prey fish is char but they will also eat other trout, we know that and in Scandinavia they will eat whitefish like you know, the shelly or the pound or the pollen. What there has to be is an abundant supply of small fish, say less than 10 inches at maximum size, probably smaller than that. And in Norway, my colleague Peros told me years ago that where you get prey fish that grow fast and large, you don't get ferox. It seems to need an abundance of herring-sized fish in a lot, whatever they are. In Scotland, it happens to be more often than not char, but they will certainly eat other trout, and they will certainly, in locks where roach have been introduced and unfortunately wiped out the char, they can in some cases switch over to eating the roach instead. So deep, nutrient-poor lakes with large populations of stunted fish, in most cases, Ice Age relic species, are the key to triggering and the ultimate survival of ferox trout. Yes, it's definitely an old Ice Age association. In, in my book, I made the analogy between ferox being the aquatic wolf and char being the aquatic reindeer. And, and the thing that still stands, we've got a, a, a relic glacial situation. The Ice Age is still happening in those locks.
And is the distribution directly linked to the day-to-day -day movements of these shoals in the sense that locating the prey shoals could be a key angling clue in looking for ferox in the vastness of a glacial Scottish loch or English lake? Well, we used to wonder, are ferox ambush predators a bit like pike hiding somewhere in a favoured haunt and then they dash out and ambush the fish? Or do they go on a kind of roving hunt? And the suggestion is from the tagging work we've done that they are roving report predators. They rove around actively seeking prey. They may have favoured bits in the loch, but they're very, very mobile. So the angler is best to be mobile. They're, they're, they're certainly not static predators. The, all the evidence we suggest is that they'll move many miles. They can actually do two and three miles in a day, no problem. So they're very active fish. Northern Britain, and particularly Scotland, has numerous relic char populations. Hundreds, in fact, with research done by yourself and colleagues turning up additional new ones on a regular basis as more potential waters are investigated. I'd like to come back to char speciation later in the interview. But one thing that has been well documented is the way which char have adapted to whichever lake or loch they happen to be resident in. Have the ferox trout in those same waters also evolved to suit their particular prey shoals, or do they employ more of a standardised hunting strategy? Well, in respect of the lochs and lakes that contain more than one kind of char, the only thing I can say is in Rannoch, which is probably the best example where you've got these deep water char we call benthic char, plus the ordinary pelagic midwater char. The evidence suggests from their stomachs is that the ferox are only eating the pelagic variety. We have never found a benthic char in a ferox stomach, which doesn't mean to say they're not eating them, we just haven't found that, but the indication is that that's what they're doing, they're only eating the one kind of char. In terms of the other kind of char that you get in Winnipeg with spring spawners and autumn spawners, their ecology is still very, very similar, so I don't think there'll be any differentiation there. And in many cases, we just haven't looked at enough locks with these multiple forms of char in it to come to a conclusion. But the evidence from Rannoch alone is that they're only eating the pelagic char. In Norway, there seem to be specialist groups of ferrocks that live in the southern lakes which only eat the whitefish, which are midwater fish. And there are ferrocks in the mountain lakes where they're predominantly eating bottom living char. And when they switch these ferrocks groups about into these logs, they didn't do very well. It seemed to be one kind of ferrocks was homed into the midwater fish and another kind of ferrocks was homed into the bottom living fish. So there may be a differentiation we don't know about yet in, in, in Scottish logs. We just haven't looked at enough places. There is a general biological principle regarding predator-prey ratios which controls predator numbers to maintain a healthy coexisting population balance. Have any such studies been done on the numerical or biomass relationships between ferox and their preferred prey? And if so, are they conforming to expectation? Or are ferox simply a rare phenomenon in any given holding water? Evidence suggests that they are very, they're very sparse top predators. The problem is we don't actually know enough about the, the true biological yield, the, the, the sustainable yield, the standing crop. In some locks it's higher than others. but. Uh, it's obvious from the tagging work and the recapture work that they've done that ferrox are not very common and maybe less common than we thought. But we may also be in a period of decline because there's some evidence from our netting that the char numbers have been in decline, so if the prey goes down, so will the ferrox. So the case is still out, but we're certainly dealing with quite a rare fish. Uh, the, the main evidence we've got is uh, Loch Rannach and to some extent Loch Garry. 
But we know it varies from lock to lock. Some locks contain more ferrets than others, but we don't have enough data to be totally definitive in that. But certainly, they're quite rare, uh, and you know that, that's a worrying point, and may be in some places in decline. Given the ferox trout and the prey species have a tendency towards deep, stratifying glacial ribbon lakes, which could fairly readily be identified and listed, does it follow then that all of these waters will contain ferox trout? Or is that too simplistic a statement to make? Well, it's closely associated with char. Uh, nearly every loch that's more than 100 hectares and over 25 metres deep, 30 metres deep, has got char. And in most of those places we have uh, indications either from direct records or people telling us that there are big fish-eating trout. But the classic examples are all the big lochs. So all of these lochs that are more than sort of, 10 kilometres square in area and, and over 30 metres deep probably have got ferrets in them. We're still discovering new lochs with char in them. So that's how little we know. But there's never been a nationwide basic inventory study of, of Scottish lochs. So, so it's one of the pleasures of going there, you're, you're at the front edge of Zines, but it's quite surprising that we know so little about what's actually in lochs. What then is the situation with Ireland? In terms of its post-glacial geography, much of that is a far cry from the Scottish Highlands, yet it does have glacial relic populations of char and whitefish in some of its lochs. From Andy Ferguson's studies, it seems that while they do have large strictly fish-eating trout there, these may not be the same as Scottish and English ferox trout. So, are these fish part of a ferox brown trout complex, or are we talking here of something completely different? In some ways, particularly in north and west of Ireland, up at Donegal and in Ulster, the ecology seems quite like what we have in the Highlands. But in southern Ireland, where you've got lots of limestone, the lochs are much more productive in Ireland than they are in Scotland, and they're also not structured the same. You don't get so many of these giant you know, glacial V-shaped lakes or U-shaped lakes, they tend to be more extensive, not so deep, and their, their basin morphometry, the shape of the bottom, seems to be very different. So a direct analogy between Scottish and Irish logs isn't always possible because the physical structure as well as the biological environment in Irish logs are quite different. So how do these Irish variations on the brown trout, ferox trout theme fit into the greater scheme of things? They presumably will have evolved developmental and reproductive patterns dissimilar to ordinary brown trout. But are these similar to or radically different from the ferox trout of the Scottish Highland Locks? Well, the history of Ireland shows us that it's been isolated for quite some time and just periodically connected to, to, the, to the rest of the islands. But in general, the, the, the ferox behaviour seems to be the same, even though the structure isn't quite the same. You've still got to have a prey base which used to be uh, char, it's now roachins, for instance, uh, Loch Corrib and Loch Mask, uh, or pollen, or and unfortunately it's roach in some places. So, in that sense, there has to be an abundant fish prey for the ferrets to access. In Ireland, of course, with them being biologically more productive, the big trout can still get enough energy from eating enough shrimps and mayfly larvae. It's quite, it's quite different in the ecology, it's not always the same. There is uh, a link, there is a similarity, but it's not, you know, a cast iron identical copy. I think it's fair to say that much of what is currently known about ferox trout has come from the pioneering work of the Ferox 85 group. A lot of science is carried out by your group's members, but it's just as much an angling study group too. So let's talk a little about the history and activities of the group itself. 
Well, it's now the 25th year of uh, the for- since the formation of Ferrex 85, back in uh, June 1985, when we were asked as part of a, a, a whisky sponsorship deal to go and try and catch the new British re- record, Rod Caught Trout. And it was staged on the banks of Loch Cuich, where the original record in the, the, the late 70s or, early, or late 60s, early 70s was caught and it stood still for many, many years. So basically, I was part of a team that were asked to, to get together and ca- try and catch this record. And the team consisted of a mixture of anglers and scientists. And at the end of basically a blank week on the shores of Loch Cuich, we came to the conclusion that we didn't really know a great deal about the Ferox. So we decided to form a specialised group that would combine angling research with biological research and we called it the Ferrex 85 because it was formed in 1985. Because all the indications were, from reading the literature from Scandinavia and other places where these trout occurred, that there was no reason why the record should not be broken and we argued, based on the growth rate and biological productivity, that it would have been possible to get trout over £30. And we were laughed at for considering that there could be wild fish that size swimming about uncaught in Scottish lochs. And I'm glad to say we've been totally vindicated because we have caught three trout over £30 since our formation. The record's been broken many times now. Uh, And it started with uh, Alistair Thorne breaking the record in 1993. And then after that it seemed to encourage more people once we proved it was possible. And there's now more anglers going out there as uh, ferrox fishing has been revitalised. And there's quite a high success rate now. Uh, and probably now, you know, scores of trout over £20 have been caught. But just to three over 30, one just under. But that's not the potential of the species. They could go £35, £40 yet. So that's the next prediction, that we will get a fish somewhere between £35 and £40. That would certainly be a sight to see. Do you have any particular water in mind where such a huge fish might come from? And if so, which one is it and why? Well, Loch Haw is the classic one. It seems to be the, the queen of all ferrox lochs is Loch Haw. And that's the place where we're more likely to get the 40-pounder. The other lochs, Arkeg, Kuich, may produce fish well into the 20s. Rannoch is disappointed as we didn't get the 20-pounders we thought might be there. But it's definitely all... Loch Lochy, Loch Arkeg and Loch Cuig. Those are the four where the big 20 pounders are going to come from in the future. Going back to Loch Arkeg for a moment, I understand there are salmon cages in the loch through which fall good numbers of high protein pellets missed by the salmon which are snapped up by the char, some of which have grown to huge proportions. What, if any, effect might this have on food availability for the ferox trout if the potential prey started to get too large to handle? Again, we haven't done the full research on that. It seems to be quite local effects. <clears throat> and I know from Arkeg the char reach huge sizes just eating the pellets, but there's two kinds of char in Arkeg as well. And it's only the bottom living one that accesses the food directly that way. The other one may benefit from the loch becoming enriched. What we can't say in Loch is that the only reason why we're getting 30 pounders is because of fish cages, because we know way back in 1866 they were catching fish over 30 pounds years before the first first cages went in so it's not simply a matter of fish cages equals giant trout but there's no doubt about it the fish cages can add to the fertility of the law sometimes they can over fertilize it so there's obviously been an influence the other thing that happens in uh, 
in loss with rearing facilities is there is the inevitable escape and suddenly there's all this first class protein going around with no knowledge of predators so uh, the fact that this might reach tens of thousands of fish in some cases might have an influence on it, there's no doubt about that. In your opinion then, and the stats overwhelmingly appear to bear this out, if you want a really big ferox trout, Loch Orr appears to be the place to go. But it can also be a soul-destroying place to fish. So what makes you recommend this particular water as the key one to target for record fish? Well, there's a certain ad- adjective we put in front of Loch Orr that I can't repeat on a podcast. You can say it if you want. Uh, well, it's politely, we sometimes call it Loch Bugger Orr. Uh, although the expletive is sometimes stronger than that. It, it is a very difficult place, but on the other hand, it's a very good place for ferrets. And there's only one reason why the ferrets grow fast and grow big. Life is easy. They're never very hungry for long, they're meeting their energy and protein requirements very quickly. So the chances of you on a loch that's as wide as the English Channel is between Dover and Calais, and you hitting a hungry ferrox, uh, you know, in a three-dimensional environment, are actually quite low. There seems to be a, a, a peculiar situation in Loch really beneficial to the ferrox. You've got a, a nice staging ground of food. You've got char, obviously, you've got salmon smokes, you've got young trout, you've got a population of perch, you've got dummy escapees uh, from the, 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 the fishery in cages, and now we've got other species of coarse fish. So there seems to be a range of small fish allowing the ferrets to, they seem to come down, hit the loch from the, the, the raining stream, and go directly onto eating fish. Uh, and the growth is incredible. We, you know, we've had... Uh, you know, well into the double figure fish, 20 pounds that are you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. It's, it's incredible how young the fish are. So Loch seems to have the perfect combination of, of prey fish and spawning. One important phrase I picked up on there was three-dimensional. Ferox trout and many of the prey species live in a three-dimensional world, characterised by a combination of surface area and water column depth. You could therefore be in the right spot, but fishing at the wrong depth, or conversely, at the right depth and in the wrong spot. Theoretically then, for an angler at least, it seems like an almost impossible task. Or is it? How might someone wanting to catch a ferox trout cut a few corners and shorten these odds? The main thing is is fishing with confidence. What you feel is going to work, just stick with it. We've tried everything, we've tried going round the, the, the bank, fishing very shallow, we've tried fishing down with downriggers at the surface, midway down, and it all works. The biggest single ingredient in ferric success is sheer, utter relentlessness. And I'll use that word again and get you've just got to go and try. Uh, and we've had, on the same day, fish at the surface and fish 80 feet down. So work it out for yourself. So we, what we tend to do is we now go out with, our, with, with downriggers and, and rods with weights on, so we're fishing a series of depths, we're hedging our bets. As Aya Thorne puts out, we, we put the shoal out the back, you know, we've got multiple rods, uh, three guys in the boat. So uh, a variety of depths, but if I had to go with nothing else, I would try and fish round about 10, 15 metres you know, with a weight that will take me down there or a downrigger set at that depth. The thing about downriggers is not the great depth they get you to. It's knowing you're fishing at a specific depth. That's the key. And, you know, once you get experience with them, they're very good. But if you've got multiple rods out and you're not experienced in a boat, you can get yourself into one hell of a mess with all that tackle out there. What about seasonal trends? 
in terms of block or seasonality, I prefer to go out early. You know, March, April, maybe in May. Whereas in Lagan, we'll go out and our best catches have been in August. So you have to know your loch and, and you have to be there. We'll, we have caught ferrets every time of the year. We've caught them in every other, every kind of weather you could physically put a boat on. We've, you know, we've actually, you know, factor 50 sun cream on and, you know, dark glasses look like something like you know, we're fishing in the Caribbean and we still caught fish. And we've been out, we've had to break the ice to get the boat into the water and we still caught fish. So there you are. And let's not forget the times when you've caught no fish at all. Oh, yes, lots of times when you don't catch fish. Uh, <laughs> if you want to catch fish quick, don't go ferret fishing, go out for mackerel. Or fish for tame rainbow trout that have just been escaped. No, uh, we get lots of blank days. Uh, less than we used to. But uh, a blank day, well, it's probably a good day if you're with the right guys, you're trying as hard as you can, uh, you think about it and you get a good crack in the boat. So, uh, if you don't, w- don't like blank days, you don't go ferret fishing. Does it not start getting a little demoralising when you get stuck into what ultimately becomes a very bad run of form? Well, we've had weeks of it, uh, literally weeks of blank days, and uh, it sorts out the real ferrex anglers from the, the you know, the dilettantes, definitely. Uh, who are the real ferrex men? And there's many people going two and three days, t- 10, 12 hour days without getting a fish, and most people will give up after two blank days of 10, 12 hours trawling. And then in the next 10 minutes you can get the fish. We've had that. Literally 13 hours of trawling for nothing, not a hit, twitch, nout, bang, 19, 20 pounds break the record so we've had that but we're talking especially when you're going for the bigger fish the blank, a blank day is to be expected and if you can't put up with it don't start can we now take a brief look at the business end of a ferox trout outfit specifically I'm interested in the decision between lures and dead baits and in both cases presentation also how you get your chosen offering down to depth and more importantly how you keep it there taking account of your trolling speed well, we tend to trawl not at the slowest speed, just as old Ruth McCausland used to tell us, trawling at a speed just about walking speed, three miles an hour or a wee bit faster. You don't always have to go as slow as you can. We try both dead baits, uh, real fish and lures, and we, we've had a long discussion about lures versus dead baits. And funnily, some days they seem to be all caught in the lures, or mainly caught in the lures, and the other day they're caught on, on the, the fish. We've now got mountings for the fish that make the, the dead baits go like a plug or a pala or a kainach. Uh And that's the three things we tend to use now. We tend to use these uh, dead baits that, that make the fish go like a rapala. We use the classic big lures like the kainach, the tail lures, you know, the cut plug type lures. Uh, and a wobble, I still love the old wobble dead bait out the back deep down making the fish you know, rotate like a, a slowly dying fish, not a fast retrieve. So those three methods we use, um, sometimes simultaneously. In the old wobble style it was difficult, the best speed for the wobble was slightly slower than it was for making the, the cut plugs or the rapala type lures go. So it's sometimes difficult to hybridise the situation, but uh, it can work. And we've got ferox successfully when there's been a howling gale drying in the boat downwind and we've been going much faster than we do normally. So. Uh, don't worry, as long as you've not got a wake behind you and you know, sprays coming over the, your face, you're probably alright, but we tend to go at, at a fast walking pace. A common feature of many highland locks is poor visibility due to peat staining, leaving the water looking like a huge mug of tea. 
What effect, if any, might this have on the ability of predators such as ferox trout to track and successfully pick off their prey? Again, I go back to my friend Bruce McCausland and he discussed it with some old anglers. They thought that anything that made a big disturbance in the water would work. Obviously, the fish can see far better than we can, their eyesight much more acute. But even with such acute eyesight, they're probably not using a visual stimulus all the time, so they're obviously picking up in some kind of vibration or disturbance in the water. And I think finally then they're using a visual clue as well. So, that, and if you look at the way the lures work, the big flapping side to side with the rapala or the fish mounted with a rapala-like head, or the big wobble sending a pulse out. So there's obviously a strong vibration and noise being sent out, and we think the fish are, are homing in and that. What part, if any, can modern-day electronics play in improving the chances of success with ferox trout? People, when they first use an echo sounder or a sonar, tend to fall in love with the technology. And they see fish at various depths and think they're going to get them. Well, you can go down to a lake or a river, see trout rising all over the place, cast your fly as best you can, and you still catch no fish. So what makes people think, just because they can see fish in an echo sounder, you put your bait down here, they're going to take it. So, the thing about the technology is it's definitely better for picking up the bottom structure. Uh, you can maybe go and see where a shoal of char is, but we've caught fish on days when nothing apparently was showing in the echo sounder. On days where the echo sounder was showing the whole water's moving with fish, we've caught nothing. So you can't rely on technology to that kind of level. You have a delusion of technology, as, as, as we call it. You still have, if you think about it, the old Victorians and Edwardians went out there with no technology. So they didn't even have a, a, an outboard. And they were still catching fish that most people just dream about. So don't get too hooked up in technology. It is useful, but it's not a guarantee. But if you did pick up a shawl of char on the sounder, where in terms of positioning would you be looking to place your baits or lures in relation to the information coming up on the screen? Well, I've no evidence. I, I couldn't comment on that. I would, I would, I would suppose that the ferrets would try and come in from behind, but, but no, or they might just plough into the shoal and scatter them. You, I, I believe they, they, they behave just like other predatory fish eating shoal fish. They'll try and get the, the shoal into concentration and then smash it up. They'll try and isolate individual fish from the shoal and then get those, because that's what the shoal's about. Defends against a predator. So when you're going along with your crippled bait or your wobbled lure, whatever it is, that looks like an isolated fish to the ferox. I've actually seen ferox attacking shoals of char at the surface, and they're obviously just ploughing into them, you see the char jumping out of the water. So they're, they're, and sometimes you can see two fish doing this, so they might be, you know, be helping each other, but they certainly smash into them. And sometimes you get knocks on the lure of the bait as if the ferox are coming up and kind of headbutting them first. So there might be, you know, like a swordfish does, it's more specialised, hits it with the beak and injures them. The ferrets might just sort of go into shoals, whacking them around and then picking up any injured fish or finding out which one is the slowest. For me, you've painted a very honest and accurate picture of the pleasures and hardships of being a ferox trout specialist. But as in any activity, there will also have been red letter days too. Perhaps you could share some of the highlights of these with us here. The, yeah, we've had lots of red letter days. Uh, not always with the biggest fish. Um, there was one weekend at Loch Garry we had, you know, nearly a score of ferrox. Uh, most of it's put back. What sticks in your mind is days when you get a double double, and that's remarkable. 
or days when you get three ferrets on at the, the, the same time. Alice or Thorne's had that experience and things crisscrossing the line, you don't know if you're going to get them all in. These are the days you remember, uh, or the days when you were trawling for two days without a fish and suddenly you get two hits in ten minutes and, and you wonder what you were, and it's the same people, the same lures, same rods, uh, that's a red, red, a red letter day. But any time we've caught the record, obviously, any time we've had a double, uh, and sometimes just seeing the quality of the trout. I remember uh, a trout a friend caught in Loch Lagan almost midnight in, in Midsummer's Day, and you can still see it because we're far north up here. Uh, and I just remember it in the, seeing this fish lying in, in, in the dusk, and it, you could still see it almost golden, beautiful. It was just tremendous. It was under ten pounds, but it's probably one of the best quality trout I've ever seen. And I remember because of the beauty of the clear evening, with the last rays of the sun, this gentle twilight, and this giant trout for the loch line near it. Absolutely beautiful. So that's why we do it. When you have a wee dram into the setting sun, blah blah, great. In an email exchange with Alistair Thorne recently, we were reflecting on the day we had at Loch Rannoch in the company of yourself and Malcolm Greenhalge, when we boated two doubles and dropped a third smaller fish off at the side of the boat. Alistair commented that he wished he'd spent more time trying to recover those fish before deciding they were a lost cause, because based on more recent observations, even after seemingly impossible lengths of recovery effort, fish which looked to have been certain goners have survived. Yes, this is the thing that surprised me. I, I was very sceptical at first that we could catch and release ferox using the kind of robust tackle that we do. It's almost like modified pipe tackle, but it works. And that's one of the things uh, that's come out of Alistair Thorne's work and Alistair MacDonald's work is that the ferox can survive the whole catching and release process. And I've done it now on his advice, just leave them. It's mainly a depth disorientation of the swim bladders. When you bring them up from depth, the swim bladder gases up and it takes them a while to readjust that, but they do. Uh, and it, it doesn't take much longer than you think. I mean, even if you leave them half an hour, an hour they'll recover and they won't die. And we know it works because we've caught s some fish three and four times. So they can handle that process several times. It's not actually di really all. And we know that uh, we've caught fish uh, that were, say, about three or three and a half pounds, caught them a few years later, 14 pounds. But not only do they survive the process, it doesn't seem to impact negatively on their growth. So this is exciting because it means we can have a viable catch and release policy for these rare animals so we can have high quality angling without wiping out the stock. So that's very, very encouraging. Having looked at the practical angling lessons of the work done by Ferox 85, what about the scientific side of things? You've obviously amassed huge amounts of data across a wide range of variables. What do those data tell you? Well, now we've got m more information on the growth, the maturation, the parasites, the diet. Uh, we've got more information on the genetics, and that's the information still coming in. We've got a great deal of information now, thanks to Alice's work, on their, on their movements, the survivability of angling. So we have moved forward. But the thing to remember is, this has all been a process of people doing it in their spare time. That there hasn't actually been, you know, much official uh, support for ferrox research. And as a top predator, the ferrox give you an inkling of what's happening in the law. And when we've got this world-class angling resource, and it is world-class, it's one of the few things that are left that are almost truly wild, and it's a world-class brown trout fishing experience. We would like to see more official research into this, more backing, because this has angling tourism and environmental tourism is very important today. 
uh, and so we you need to know more about these fish because they're so precious and they're so indicative of the health uh, uh, of the law. Going back to repeat captures being indicative of ferox trout resilience, providing they're handled sensibly, obviously this information comes from tagging recaptures. Is this always done using dark tags or do you have access to acoustic, radio or even satellite tags? Most of this has been done by Alistair Thorne and, and colleagues and they've used uh, radio tags, you know, depth recording tags, that kind of thing. So there was that kind of measurement plus there's been ordinary sort of dark tags, you know, the, the traditional tag. So we've had both sources of information. And the, the radio tags, the sonic tags, the depth tag type of thing, the more technologically advanced stuff, showed that the fish were moving about all over the place quite rapidly, that they were using all depths of the locks, that uh, of the lock, that there were there was daytime, nighttime movements, they were moving into shallow water at night, back into deeper water during the day. So we've got much more information on the behavioural background, but again, that was only in one law. Well, to take one lock and apply it to all over the place may be dangerous. Uh, and then the next backup was Loch Rannach, and we found the information in Beer was quite similar. But we have to be careful in extrapolating from two locks in a part-time study and what's going on in every loch. Have you been able to successfully marry what the science is telling you with practical angling? Well, when we go angling now, we've got this information at the back of our head. We're not worried now about going to a specific location to fish as much. We know the fish are moving about all over the place. So we go where it's pleasant to fish and where we like to fish, knowing that that's just as likely as any other place to, to go and get the fish. So we know that, and uh, we know there's not very many. So that doesn't discourage us. But, you know, when you don't catch fish, it's not because you're useless. It's just difficult to encounter them. So, so to that extent, uh, but the idea of you know all that extra scientific in information is going to give you an instant catch. Forget it. You've still got to do the work. So, is there any exciting new science in the pipeline which might just tip things a little more in the angler's favour? Well, right now I'm trying to. Uh, get backing to do more survey work and more Scottish laws to find out the previous, get a status quo. One thing that's worrying me just now is the if we have climatic warming it may be affecting the char spawning because char, char eggs die when the water gets too warm in the autumn, but you know the leather eggs have got a very low temperature tolerance. Uh, and the other thing that's worrying me when you've got climatic change is the spread of exotic fish, people letting fish go deliberately or accidentally that might be, uh, you know, benefit from a warming climate. This loch we're sitting in front of just now, uh, recently people have started catching roach after years of not catching any roach, so there's a change going on even in this loch we're sitting in front. And we don't know about the impacts of that on the trout and the char, but the ecology will not be the same. So I'd like to get more baseline studies done on what the status of the fish population in these big lochs are before they, they change. So we need to do more of that, and uh, I'd like to see more of the tagging work that Alice has done taking place in other places to find out about numbers in other places, to find out how they're using the, the, the depth and the range of environment in, in the loch. So, if as you suggest, ferox trout are just fish feeding brown trout, and if, as is the case, a lot of fish farming takes place on many of these lochs, when there are mass escapes, Besides providing an extra welcome source of protein for the ferox, is there also any threat from genetic pollution through inbreeding? Well, in most of the lost concern, the, the fish they're rearing are either salmon or rainbow trout, which obviously are not going to breed with the brown trout. The, what happens with the salmon might be 
case in point but the rainbow trout by and large don't breed so they're only a temporary problem in that context and if they're small the ferrets will eat them and the pike will eat them uh, the big danger is and it's not happening if people were rearing brown trout in Scottish logs then you might get mixtures but uh, by and large brown trout are not a target species for fish farmers what about the potential for disease or parasitic problems? The disease problem uh, probably is, is not such in freshwater because the main problem we have with fish farms is infestation with sea lice. And that might affect you know, the, the sea trout going down. Well, it does. Uh, I, I'm quite sure of that. But the, 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 there isn't any indication of that being a problem in terms of the ferrets. Obviously, if the worry about this uh, gyrodactyl is coming in from Scandinavia affecting the salmon, well, that might affect them because the only way they seem to be able to deal with it is to poison whole river systems. And this is, we can't do that. It's incredible. So we want to keep gyrodactyls out as far as... That, that's easy. The problem is every time you move fish about, you have a potential to transfer parasites and diseases, and we shouldn't do it. And what then would your message be to English anglers who have come up here and tried, possibly without success, and have immediately formed an early opinion about ferox trout fishing? Well, everyone is entitled to their opinion. We live in a democracy. But uh, if I ever meet anyone who describes himself as a ferox expert, I think they're either drunk or they've been in some other form of substance abuse or just uh, suffering from delusions of competence. We just don't know enough for anyone to be a ferox expert. We may, some of us in the, you know, have been trying a bit harder, may know more than the average person. But experts, no, we, that, that would be megalomania. We get too many humiliating defeats to be, to be called an expert. And you can go out and get a fish in 21 minutes, like a famous TV personality we took out once did, or you can spend the next 20, 21 days catching nothing. So ferrox experts are very sceptical about ferrox experts. That said, as the work of the ferrox group becomes more widely known, do you think that more anglers will visit the Scottish Highlands or even the English Lake District with big wild trout in mind? And are the people who govern these regions currently missing out on perhaps a very clear controlled tourism opportunity here? Yeah, I think there's a very positive tourist aspect provided we manage it correctly. The fact that we know we can catch and release these fish quite successfully with no damage to the, the, to the fish or very little means that we have a potential of an angling resource that's unique to the highlands almost or, or to, to the north and the west uh, in areas which are economically challenged from other points of view they have world class brown trout fishing and we can see that down at Loch Hall you know there's, there's a coterie of people turn up every opening day and there's more and more anglers coming with the same dream uh, and when you see the amount of investment in uh, tackle equipment, clothes travel expenses, accommodation expenses, there's obviously there's an economic input here that we could maybe realise more without damaging the stock that's what I like about it, there's a way of using this resource without undermining the resource, without over exploiting it, provided we stick to the protocols and provided we have the right kind of biological information so I'm, I'm very intrigued with that as are the Irish here is something, the native biodiversity, this isn't an exotic species something native that's highly valuable uh, and whether we, the, the issue is, are we going to treasure it enough now and look after it enough? Loch Orr appears to stand out in all of this, primarily as potentially the biggest fish producer, but also for its infrastructure in terms of accommodation, boat hire and the like, things which many other potential ferox waters lack. Loch Orr's become to ferox angling what Loch Lomond's become to pike angling, and you have good but regulated access 
uh, to, to lock on. It's actually, in many ways, a very good example of how you can do that. Uh, but there's also other good management examples. Uh, Rannoch, for example, the Conservation Association there uh, will let you put a boat on or hire a boat, but they've got strict regulations about how many. You know, the, the good example of Loch Hall, Loch Rannoch, uh, Archaic Lochy, could be expanded elsewhere and it's this is something I would hope that local riparian owners and angling clubs could see the sense of using ferrex angling sensibly and controlling the access, making people welcome uh, but managing it you know, quite tightly I think there's a, a good potential for that One thing I'm puzzled about is that although we have good ferrox trout in places like Windermere and Crummet Water which are known to be true because I've seen them caught and despite additional numbers also being accidentally taken by pike anglers, nobody, it seems, is interested in taking up the challenge south of the border. Well, I know one or two people that are specialising in Windermere. Uh, I also know that pike anglers catch the, the ferrets because the actual methods are quite similar. And that's a thing that people forget. You can't catch ferrets on dead baits just lying in the bottom. And I know there are one or two anglers who, who, in Windermere uh, who go specifically for the ferrets. It's not quite as common yet. And this kind of thing may be just lack of awareness, but the potential exists for the Lake District uh, locks to do the same as well. Just the fact that uh, it's uh, not such an extensive area as the Highlands, but they're there. Windermere, to me, seems like the perfect English venue. It contains both spring and autumn spawning char. Coniston is the only other English lake with spring spawners, yet the commercial char fishermen there, who you would expect would occasionally pick up big trout, see very little evidence of them being there. Crummock Water is the only other venue I've seen English ferox trout taken from, and we have tried quite a few lakes, though not to any meaningful degree, so you probably can't read too much into our results. We also have whitefish in Ullswater and Bassenthwaite, yet no rumours of ferox trout coming out of those locations either so nothing there really to get your teeth into. But I suppose Ferox 85 would also have started from a similarly low baseline of information. Some of it may just be angling effort. Uh, we know that there's a loch that's fished heavily for pike, it's a very popular venue, and people discount the fact that there's ferrets in it, but when we moved out into the deeper water and started trolling with our specialised techniques, suddenly in this rather famous loch that's very well known, we started catching ferrets, and people didn't seem to know they were there. So, in Ullswater, if you've got a good population, do you call them Shelley? Or, or, yes, or, or, yeah, well, they're, they're, they're a good prey base for ferrets, so if, if I were down in the Lake District, I, have a, I would have a good go at Ullswater. From personal angling experience, the whitefish population in Ullswater seems to be very thin on the ground. I have caught skellies there, but only occasionally, despite huge amounts of time investment trying. On the other hand, perch and small brown trout are abundant enough. Would that be a suitable source of food despite the poor showing of the whitefish? Well, when you've got a diversified prey base like that, it, would, it probably would be. The thing to remember that catching, catching shelly or whitefish is actually very difficult on rod and line, and uh, what you catch on rod and line might not be any indication whatsoever of what the population really like. It's quite amazing when you go angling and people, you know, when you put a net in, you suddenly get a revelation about what's what. But the fact you've got perch and small trout and, and whitefish is probably, uh, there's a good range of, uh, of prey fish base there. Uh, I'd be even more optimistic. Putting the ferrox to one side for a moment and looking in a bit more detail at the supposed prey fish, the whitefish and the char, both of which are post-glacial relic species with very specific environmental requirements at our latitude, two species of whitefish are found. 
The skelly, gwynyard or poen, which are the same species depending on whether you're in England, Scotland or Wales, and which can be caught on rod and line, and the vendace or pollen, which is not a rod and line candidate. The one that intrigues me most is the skelly, which we've caught on many occasions from Red Tarn at the base of Helvellyn. But the size and gradient of Red Tarn Beck linking the tarn with Ullswater is such that there seems no way that the skelly could ever make it up there unaided. But nevertheless, the species is there. You have to bear in mind, somebody may in the past have moved fish about deliberately. The Samis do that, but you can almost, in, up in Lapland, you can work out the pattern of, of, of Sami migration where the whitefish have replaced the char. Uh, you can actually see it along the migration routes. The other thing too is, when you look at the landscape, the landscape during the Iceland age was not the way it is just now. You can have big ice dams, you know, two, three hundred feet high, backing up water. You know, for miles behind where the ice dam, then the ice melts and you're left with a small walk. But the ice has acted as a fish elevator. It's moved fish into places where you wouldn't think fish would get. So you can't always look at the way the landscape is just now. Waterfalls may have been overcome by the ice dam. One observation I've made, certainly so far as England is concerned, is that with one possible exception, lakes that contain char don't have whitefish and vice versa. Well, that's a very moot point. Uh, usually, uh, whitefish outcompete char, uh, and I'm very worried because uh, of a lock in Scotland where some biologists in a fit of madness put uh, whitefish from Bassethwaite into uh, Loch Erne, uh, and I'm deeply worried about the char in Loch Erne being wiped out by the whitefish. Scandinavian research says whatever whitefish have been introduced uh, by man, the char population has normally collapsed because they outcompete them for the zooplankton. So uh, the exclusivity of whitefish and char is a general rule. You get the odd exception like Loch Eck in Scotland or the one you mentioned where they've evolved together. But where you introduce them uh, artificially, then the char population usually gets wiped out. Perhaps then the problem lies in the particular population you introduce. Unlike the skellies in Ullswater, which seemingly eat all manner of things, the whitefish species from Bassenthwaite are essentially planktonic feeders, which presumably will have more of a conflict-based influence on the char. The ones in Bassenthwaite are what we call vendes, and what's called cisco in Scandinavia North America, and they are really competitive against char, and unfortunately that's the one that's been put in to Loch Erne. And the Scandinavian experience also suggests that if you put the Vendes into where the, the Shelley is, they will either out-compete them or interbreed with them. You, have, you can have a negative impact as well. So th there's a worry about that too, unless, again, they have evolved together. You say that the two British whitefish species are capable of interbreeding. So despite their different feeding strategies, they must be very closely linked. Yes, uh, whitefish, the problem with integration, as we call it in whitefish, is a classic problem. It's even worse than char. You have all these variant forms of whitefish. Uh, it's a complex, and people are trying to understand the complex, and the science is not perfect. But you have these classic situations where you have the equivalent of the Shelley and the equivalent of the Vendes, and you get all sorts of interrelationships. Sometimes the white, one wipes out the other, or the interbreed. So the whitefish complex is a scientific problem, you know, even worse than the char complex one is. What then are the chances of them producing viable offspring to complicate the picture still further? Yes, they can back cross, that's the problem. It's, it's true integration, you know, because they're so, they're the same genus, they're very near to each other. 
much nearer than Charar to Trout. Looking back to when I first started fishing, I owned a book which named all the different char populations in British and Scottish lakes and locks as separate species. In more recent times, however, they've all been placed under the single scientific name of Salvalinus alpinus. Presumably then, that was the right thing to do. But do unique variations within char species, such as benthic versus pelagic feeding and spring versus autumn spawning, suggest that while they're not completely separate species, some populations could be drifting towards subspecies status? We're getting more genetic information in now. Uh, we even call it the Salvolinus alpinus complex, but it's probably that's uh, too simple an explanation. All the char are definitely in the genus Salvolinus, and we're having a fresh argument now over splitting all these populations into individual ones, or are they just variants on the theme? What seems to be coming through the result is there seems to be one group of char that migrated in from a glacial refuge somewhere to the west of the Hebrides in Ireland and another one in the North Sea Baltic area and in Ranath those two extreme types meet the eastern and the western forms and they're, they're quite genetically distinct, you can, there's no doubt about that but even within each type there are variations locally because these fish have been isolated from each other for probably 10, 12,000 years and considering a child will start spawning age 3 that's a lot of generations compared to you know human beings so you get it's equivalent of Galapagos finches. They've been isolated in little islands, only this time the islands are lochs or lakes, not terrestrial ones. So you can have them coming from a common ancestor but going the different way. You get locally locally variant populations because they're only exchanging genes amongst themselves and not sharing genes uh, with, uh, with a huge population of fish. What then is the situation with the white fishes, particularly considering how genetically close they are? The perceived wisdom suggests they were all pushed out by rising sea levels from the brackish post-glacial Loch Hibernia, sited in what is now the Irish Sea Basin, causing them to migrate up rivers around the Irish Sea coast of England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales. I used to believe that, but not now, because we now know that the Irish whitefish, which are still Carreganus, the pollen as opposed to the pound of the shelly, they are very distinct from the British populations. In fact, they're more like Siberian ones. Uh, than they are to the British ones. So a common Lake Hibernia, Loch Hibernia, with all these whitefish, some only migrating into Ireland and some only migrating into Britain, uh, 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 to me it's not viable. Uh, the, 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 the whitefish in Ireland and the whitefish in Britain have two entirely different glacial histories. Char at the end of the last glacial period would have been sea-run before eventually finding themselves isolated in our deeper lakes, either by geography or climatic change, where they become stunted by lack of resources but a viable nonetheless. What then is the real story behind the whitefish? The whitefish are less tolerant of salt water than char. So you're looking at glacial margins of freshwater meltwater or huge shunts of water when ice dams burst. So the, the opportunities for whitefish to move in around the coast are less than the are for char and we don't have whitefish in as many locks as we, as we do char because char are more saltwater tolerant than whitefish are. But less, char are less tolerant of salt water than, than brown trout or salmon. So you, you get a range of salt water tolerance. So the, it looks as if the, the salt water, you know, there may be brackish water or less salt water, it hasn't affected the char so much, but the whitefish definitely have a much more restricted and peculiar glacial origin. Regardless of the links and origins, one thing that could affect all relic populations living in lakes prone to thermal stratification is, given that it does ultimately turn out to be the case, pollution-driven global warming. 
In light of the current information available, how do you see rising temperatures affecting any or all of the post-glacial relic salmonid species in the British Isles? If the worst predictions of climate warming take place, we won't be worrying about fish, we'll be worrying about the funeral arrangements for ourselves. Uh, it is a concern, but whether the climate change is going to go the way people say it is, well, time will tell. We're now getting quite severe winters again up here. In the past, it's actually been warmer than it is now, and the char obviously survived and so did the whitefish. But what we've got now is warming plus people moving fish about. So that's worrying, and we've got fish farming, and we've got pollution. So it's a difficult, it's a different situation just now, and a much more difficult one. So that an Arctic species like China whitefish would probably negatively impact, but what we have to bear in mind is they survived a warmer period of climate than we have now. So if it doesn't get any warmer than that, we'll probably still have them. But there's some evidence, uh, and I don't have enough data yet, but it's a worrying niggle in my mind that the char are declining in some loss. As an evolutionary biologist, to me, extreme and particularly rapid environmental change, while it does produce winners and losers, is the fuel of Darwinian theory. One species' disadvantage is another species' gain. That's the way it works. Surely then, regardless of the reason, this is just one more example of how evolution plies its trade. Well, I suppose in this context, why we should preserve things is because we're the cause of it. If we're going to believe it's not a natural climate change, we, we're inducing this climate change, so we have a sense of responsibility. That's the way I look at it. And uh, it survived. Everything we have now has survived. Everything the last few thousand years has done. So why lose it? due to our own stupidity. That, that's the only thing I would say about that. I, I, and I think in many cases anyway, we'll, we will not be able to do much about it. Uh, because if the changes, what, what can we do about stopping the water warming up? We have to go back, back to what's causing the pollution, what's causing the effects. So I don't think there's an awful lot we can do about it. What we might be able to do is move fish higher up, uh, but then we're changing the situation again. Uh, I don't really know how we're going to control it, and I think there will be winners and losers, but it might not turn out the way we predict. <laughs>